1886, the Scottish author Robert Louis Stevenson wrote the novella The Strange Case of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. It had such an impact that Jekyll and Hyde has entered the English language to describe someone who has a split personality, sometimes good, sometimes bad. We can also think of the character of Tom Ripley and the talented Mr Ripley. The seeds of Stevenson's story came from his own childhood in Edinburgh. When he was growing up, he became fascinated by a wardrobe his family owned that had been built by one of Scotland's most famous criminals over a hundred years before. This was a master craftsman and respectable society member during the day, but was a leader of a robbing criminal gang at night. This is a story of Deacon Brodie, the real life Jekyll and Hyde. Welcome back to the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I'm Steve, your host. Edinburgh is, of course, the capital of Scotland. It's built on a dormant volcano and best known throughout the world for its beautiful castle. A strategic stronghold during the Jacobite uprising, Edinburgh Castle was held by the Jacobite army and their claim to regain the throne for the Stuarts before their defeat at the Battle of Culloden in 1746. After this battle, Bonnie Prince Charlie fled Scotland forever. Edinburgh Castle's Great Hall was the setting for the Black Dinner. We can now associate the Black Dinner with the writings of George R. R. Martin after he based his Red Wedding in Game of Thrones on these events. In 1440, 16-year-old William Douglas had recently become the sixth Earl of the powerful Douglas clan. To celebrate, he and his younger brother David were invited for a dinner with the 10-year-old King James II of Scotland. They couldn't have known they were part of a scheme by two of King James's guardians, Lord Critchen and Sir Alexander Livingston. They were in partnership with William's uncle James to kill the Earl and install his uncle who they believed would be more loyal. After the dinner, a drum started rolling slowly. A severed black bull's head was dropped onto the table to symbolise what was to come. By all accounts, the King was shocked, begging and crying that they would be spared, but to no avail. Both brothers were given a mock trial as traitors, taken outside and immediately beheaded. William's uncle James then became the seventh Earl of Douglas. Twelve years later, the seventh Earl was dead, and in 1452, a 22-year-old King James took his revenge on his son. William, the eighth Earl of Douglas, was invited to dinner with the king and unsurprisingly 
He ended up being stabbed, having his brain split with a poleaxe, and was thrown out of a window. Edinburgh's streets had narrow passageways. It was hilly, congested with coaches, so sedan chairs were a popular mode of transport. These sedan chairs dated back to the earliest documented times. Essentially, they were a chair inside a cabin with two poles on each side and carried by two chairmen. They were also elaborately decorated, depending on your status. They were licensed like taxis and could be hired for the journey or indeed the full day. You could be picked up at your door and wouldn't have to soil your clothing walking the dirty streets. They would even come and pick you up from your bedroom, as Samuel Pepys notes on the 16th of February, 1663. Quote, Saw Sir William Wheeler, who was brought down in a sedan chair from his bedchamber, being lame of gout. Henry VIII had a sedan chair, but as he became heavier in his old age, it took four strong men to carry him anywhere. By the mid-18th century, the population of Edinburgh was around 50,000 people, crammed into what we know now as the Old Town. The new town, Georgian in style, grand and beautiful, would be built in the late 18th century. But as anyone knows, finding your way around a city can be tricky, but thankfully there were guidebooks. Indeed, there were all sorts of guidebooks. Rangers and Partial List of Ladies of Pleasure was published in 1775. This was a list written by James Tyler under the pseudonym Ranger, detailing a list of 66 prostitutes working in the city. It gave descriptions of such prostitutes as Miss Betty Clark. This lady is about 21, of middle size, red hair and good teeth. She is far from being disagreeable if it was not for her sulky temper, but she understands the power of friction well. And of a Mrs Dingwall. This lady, at 26, is a fit person to grace a table. Being pretty fat and comely, she's a good winter piece. And lastly, hardly the best advertisement for Lady Agnew, who was described as being a disgrace to her relations who are some of the best in Scotland. She regards neither decency or decorum and would willingly lie with a chimney sweep as she would with a lord. Further editions of this guide would include a map highlighting locations. These liaisons with prostitutes were a fraught and risky business, so discernible gentlemen would use a device which had been named after its inventor, Colonel Condom. This was a sheath of sheep's gut, which could be washed out, kept in a pocket, and whipped out when required. James Baldwell was a frequenter of prostitutes, but having already experienced gonorrhea, he was reluctant to risk unsafe sex with an unclean woman, and carries a condom with him, as we see from his 1763 London Journal entry. Quote, At the bottom of the haymarket, I picked up a strong, jolly, young damsel, and taking her under the arm, I conducted her to Westminster Bridge, and then, in armour complete, did I engage her. Bothwell would go on to have an affair with an actress 
and Mrs. Lewis. Separated from her husband, he sees her as a lady of class and would be clean. He does not use protection during their love affair. However, we read, quote, I rested very ill by the poisonous infection raging in my veins. I have a discharge. He has caught gonorrhea again. He is incensed with Mrs. Lewis, blames her as he had not been with anybody else for months and ends their affair. In 1741, George II is on the throne. When in 1705, a proposed marriage to Caroline of Ansbach was proposed, he visited her in disguise to inspect her first. He approved and they married. He was the last British king to lead his troops into battle against the French at the Battle of Dettingen in 1743. Although the Prime Minister Robert Walpole said as brave as he was, he was also as great a political coward ever to wear the crown. He died in 1760 at the ripe old age of 77. William Brodie was born in 1741 in Edinburgh and he was seen as a pillar of good society, a successful furniture maker, a deacon is a name given to a leader of a trade guild and a master craftsman in Scotland. It also gave him rights to be part of the city council. William therefore was known as Deacon Brodie. He was well known and respected in Edinburgh's old town. But he was also a man with a serious gambling habit who needed to maintain not just the family everybody knew about, but also two mistresses and children. Brodie's father had also been a furniture maker and William served an apprenticeship that led to his work being regarded as perhaps the best in Scotland. He grew to become a supplier of furniture to the rich and famous. Part of the work had to be undertaken in customers' homes, in business premises, installing furniture, all manners of doors, and more importantly, fitting locks. Georgian Edinburgh was very cosmopolitan, and Brodie indulged in the local social scene and set. But Edinburgh also had a dark side, an underworld of vice and crime, and Deacon Brodie came to know it well. He would frequent drinking and gambling dens, and by 1768 had managed to be seriously in debt. His lifestyle had become increasingly expensive in other ways too. By day, he was a respectable family man. By night, he maintained two mistresses, Jean Watt and Anne Grant, neither of whom knew about each other, and who, between them, borne him five illegitimate children. Deacon Brodie first turned to crime as a means to resolving his problems in 1768, when he was able to take impressions of the keys to the bank in the city. The counting house of Johnson and Smith bankers was broken into in the middle of the night. It was believed that a false key was used to enter the bank and £830 in notes from various banks was taken. It was a good amount at the time and enough to run a household for several years. In regards to criminal activities, there's no more evidence of any criminal activity until 1786. To further his criminal activities, Deacon Brodie recruited a gang 
These were George Smith, a locksmith who also ran a grocery shop. John Brown, a.k.a. Humphrey Moore, a thief who was on the run from a seven-year transportation sentence. And Andrew Ainsley, a shoemaker. They met at Henderson's Tavern. Deacon Brodie was a patron of the tavern and gambled on the cockfights held there. Between them, they launched a two-year crime wave across the city. In the process, stealing Edinburgh University's silver mace. 9th of October, 1786, Goldsmith James Weems' shop. Late November to early December, 1886, Davis and McCain's hardware store was cased and robbed. 8th of December, 1786, John Law's tobacco shop. 24th of December, 1786, John and Andrew Bruce's hardware store. 16th of August, 1787, John Carnegie's grocery store. 9th of October, 1787, Edinburgh University's silver mace. Christmas season, 1787, John Tapp's house. 8th of January, 1788, Ingo and Horner's Brodie was becoming more confident, ambitious with his criminal activities and in 1788 he planned an audacious raid on the General Excise Office in Chesil's Court just off Canongate. Brodie's role was to act as a lookout but he apparently fell asleep. As a result, the authorities, alerted to the robbery in progress, came very close to capturing the whole gang red-handed but they narrowly escaped. But because of the news headlines and the publicity over the gang's activities, and no doubt fearing the authorities were closing in, Brown broke first, with a view to a king's pardon for his crimes. Ainsley and Smith were soon afterwards apprehended. Initially the trio did not mention Brodie's involvement, but Brodie feared it would only be a matter of time and decided to flee. On hearing of Brodie's disappearance, George Smith requested an audience with Sheriff Cockburn. The message from Smith was that he wished to make an opportunity of making a clean breast and telling the truth. And tell the truth, George Smith certainly did. Not only did Smith speak of Brodie's involvement in the gang's past crimes, Smith told about crimes they were planning for the future. Smith's statement to Sheriff Cockburn doesn't indicate why he chose to mention the future crimes, but if Smith was looking to secure a king's pardon, he did not receive it. But George Smith had fingered Deacon Brodie so convincingly that the sheriff questioned Ainsley about Brodie's involvement with the gang. Ainsley confirmed Brodie's involvement with the crime ring and the Edinburgh Sheriff's Office put a bounty of £150 sterling for Brodie's capture and an additional £50 bonus if Brodie was convicted. Deacon Brodie had first fled to London four days after the failed robbery and he had befriended an Edinburgh resident called Thomas Geddes on the journey to London before escaping to Amsterdam. Brodie had given Geddes some letters asking if he would deliver them once back in Edinburgh. By the time Geddes returned, a wanted ad and a physical description of Brodie was all over the news 
Recognising this as the man who gave him the letters, Geddes handed them in to the police. They contained information pertaining to the excise robbery and that he planned to go to Amsterdam. It was sensational news that this pillar of society that many knew so well could turn out to be a master criminal. Brodie lay low for a while in Amsterdam, but with the ports being watched, he was arrested on the point of boarding a ship bound for America and he was returned to Edinburgh in chains. Brodie's trial began on the 27th of August, 1788. He was convicted on the basis of the word of the other members of the gang and incriminating items found at his home and workshop. These included a stock of duplicate keys, a disguise and pistols. By this time, Ainsley and Brown had both turned King's evidence and Brodie and Smith were both sentenced to be hanged. Deacon Brodie was hanged on the 1st of October 1788, aged 47, at Edinburgh's Tollbooth, a grim building that stood in the middle of the high street near St Giles Cathedral. Ironically, the gallows used was one which Brodie, a city councillor, had certainly helped authorise the funds for, and some claim he designed. People came from far and wide to witness, and it was said there was a crowd of upwards of 40,000 people watching the hangings. Brodie was said to have worn a powdered wig and a fine set of clothes. Smith was also hanged that day. Deacon Brodie was buried in an unmarked grave. There is a pub by the name of Deacon Brodie on the Royal Mile commemorating his name. Well, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and join me on Twitter. I've been Steve, your host. Till next time. Bye bye.